0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Welcome to R's Bite Into It. Tonight, you're joined by Cassie Wright and me, Vanessa Tohoka so good to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining me. Uh, so this evening, we're really looking forward to a couple of interviews that we've got set up for you. One is with the director of the Melbourne Web Fest. You really want to know all about that festival. And also we'll be speaking to a professor about how Victoria is celebrating 60 years of computing. So do stick around for those. But before we get to that, it's one of those weeks where there's tons of news and we're only going to be able to get through so many and scratch the surface. I believe but uh, one of the one of the big pieces was that Microsoft acquired LinkedIn for twenty six point two billion dollars i know i was I was weirdly
2: excited when I saw that i, I don 't really know why that i there was a very divisive feed people being like oh no now i've got to get off linkedin and some people being like
1: this is great so i liked that it prompted a whole suite of clippy jokes because <laughs> we're never going to forgive microsoft for clippy apparently <laughs> look it was it was curious in that um linkedin had been struggling in the stock market at the start of the year and at the end of last year and there have been lots of comments about it for a little while now and yeah, suddenly this has is, this is sort of put a big vote of confidence behind them and taken a lot of risk away from the LinkedIn management. Uh, for those who don't know LinkedIn very well, it's a professionals-oriented social networking site. So it's a place where people put up really virtual CVs, um, can write public blogs about their professional interests, can connect with lots of other people and it really is just networking for professionals. Yeah, and then with
2: networking, you get the various degrees of people casually networking and staying in touch and people aggressively self-promoting.
1: So. But also uh, the recruiters using the site incredibly yep. heavily, reaching out to people, paying to use the site, and that's, that's what the business model is mostly yeah. based on, that and advertising. Yeah, but they sort of, they, they pay for the um, connections to people, and yeah, I know plenty of people who've had job offers through the platform, so mm. it really is quite a powerful place. All right, that's enough about LinkedIn, (laughs) for it is the week of Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. Um, It's held in San Francisco every year, and it really is the time that Apple fans look out for announcements about what's going on in the Apple development world. Uh, So on the list this year, we had things like the iOS 10 operating system that's been launched. Yeah,
2: that's so cool. a lot of the stuff that did come out of this in a nutshell was basically about making it a little bit easier to move between desktop and devices for Apple users, mm. um, which is which is really great to see having that increased connectivity. So you've got things like Apple Pay, which is mobile only now working on Safari.
1: Mm. Um, you've got Siri now being on desktop, which is a big... And as well as Siri being on desktop, you've got Apple have opened Siri to developers trying to make it easier for third-party developers to hook into the Siri capability so that they can use that voice recognition functionality with their apps rather than just having that as Siri only and Apple only. That is going to be really interesting. Yeah, that's uh,
2: opened up a whole new can of worms. There's other things like the, you know, inevitably Apple Watch getting faster, adding new features. Um as you said, lots of updates for iOS, but um, even redesigns, complete redesigns for music and maps, more navigation focus for maps. They're mm. doing this whole 3D touch thing, which seems pretty interesting. So I
1: definitely, if that's your uh, cup of tea, would would read up on that. It's funny reading the hype because when you look at this list, it really is a list of things that they've been caned for in the last yes. 12 months. <laughs> so Apple Watch, look, it's sleek. It's beautifully designed. It, it's a nice feeling object. And lots of people have found very little purpose for it. So, you know, and that's that's fine for a first-gen product. You know, that's going to happen a bit. But it's quite an expensive product. So you know, I I don't know that everyone should uh, take the risk on first gen Apple products. Yeah, in terms of messages, now
2: the messaging app has undergone a a bit of a transformation, which definitely is to make it more of a competitor to, say, Facebook and Mm. WhatsApp. Uh, Any one of those other messaging apps that you can use that have stickers and GIFs and that type of stuff, your standard uh, texting, even if it was iMessage, was lagging behind that. Mm, It really was. um, We were seeing a shift of people Moving towards those apps, Apple have tried to pull them all back, um, revamping iMessage to have what they're calling bigger emoji, but it's really stickers <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that we're used to. Um, and Apple have always been um, quite ahead of the pack, the messaging yeah. pack in terms of security. Exactly. So they've been pushing people on the security front, and Facebook have bought out WhatsApp, and then WhatsApp have brought in that encryption, encryption which is great. So it's it's nice to see the players out there, you know influencing each other um, in terms of what consumers want and applying that.
2: Interestingly enough, there was also uh, a really important announcement that came out of that, uh, which was that Apple, uh, again, is introducing differential privacy as well, which is a whole, um, it's, been, it's been around for years and it's about masking data even better to keep it from being extracted. So instead of individually tracking you, which uh, Google seems to be doing more and more, they're moving away from getting data about a suburb or an area without tracking the individual user. So mm. that'll be really interesting to see and You know, in the privacy fight,
1: (laughs) who's going where? Absolutely. We can hope that people inspire each other to new heights and better levels of privacy. So rather than spending too much time on Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, we figure if you're really into that, then you're probably looking at the announcements as they come out. There's plenty of articles out there. Uh, We're always waiting for the BuzzFeed one because that's always the the (laughs) most fun breakdown. (laughs) We do want to cover um, something about the election. So Labor have released their NBN policy and it promises 2 million upgraded connections um, and a cable option. It's actually, it's quite a well thought out policy that they've looked at the shortcomings, they've looked at what can we feasibly change at the point that we would come into government if we do indeed come into government. And they've also thought about where can we really ramp up the capabilities beyond um, just fibre to the node and actually have that, go back to that original plan of fibre to the premises as much as possible with the undertaking that we can't, you know, reverse what's already been done, and there's only so much money in the in the uh, bank. So mm-hmm. we should you um, should have a look at that policy. Uh, there's quite a lot of articles about it. It's covered in news. dot com today, U and ABC, and everyone's got articles about it. So. What, it, what the articles I've read have said so far is that um, they're promising to almost double the number of households with access to fibre to the home, so fibre to the premises, which is great news. Um, at the same time, they're also going to continue the Coalition's hybrid fibre coaxical connections through pay TV cables, despite not thinking that that's a great solution, but it's it seems very much a compromise with uh, dealing the the hand of cards that they've been dealt. They're promising to phase out the fiber to the node technology beyond the existing pipeline of works. Um, so that's the point where they're like, all right, this sort of stuff scheduled to roll out. It's already in the implementation phase. But anything beyond that, we're cutting off because we don't believe in that hardware implementation. That's a, that's a big tick from us. That's that's good news. Yeah. Um, so people on the map to receive fibre-to-the-node option at the moment will still get it. So that's, that's kind of... It's a, it's a sting in the tail, really, for people who have been on the early phases of the rollout. You're either at the very front end where you got super NBN and then you moved into phase two, which was just like NBN, not really. And if, you know, depending on who gets in at the next election, um, your NBN could be about the same as it is, like mediocre. Well, or I'm currently on nothing, so yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anything would be a plus right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty important. So it, it looks like a, a combination of pragmatism and, um, and ambition, which is nice to see. It'll be great to see what all of the other minor parties think about the policies and where they weigh in. So we'll be yeah. looking out for what the Greens have to say about this, what the Pirate Party has to say, what the Sex Party has to say, and, you know, maybe even some fledgling little independents who have views about NBN. We'll, we'll have to um, wrap that up. In a couple of weeks before the election, we are going to have an election special on BITE, so we will try and bring these tech-faceted issues to you in a more cohesive way. We um, are really... Happy to be joined in studio now by Festival Director of Melbourne Webfest, Stana Ellingson. Welcome.
0: Thanks, guys.
1: It's been um, a couple of years since we've spoken to you about Webfest, but we've been uh, keen watchers of your festival ever since it launched in 2013. I wonder if you could tell our listeners um, what the the Melbourne Webfest is all about.
0: Well, yeah, it's all about web series, I suppose. Uh, It's about acknowledging the uh, amazing work that's being done out there, both in Australia and and internationally. Um, So when
1: we look at web series, I guess some of the great examples um, from the last few years would be the catering show. Cassie, have you got any (laughs) favourites? Oh, there's so many. I'm a big fan of... um
2: Awkward black girl from the US. Uh, yes. a huge fan of of Esau Ray's work.
0: We almost got her to come out this year.
2: Oh, just got her next year. I've got a T-shirt. Twins, so. yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll we'll. we'll... Keep trying till she, she comes, but you know, she's shooting a, her web series eventually turned into a HBO series. Yeah. Well it's a different concept I suppose, but she's been, you know, working with him for a couple of years and the scheduled in line unfortunately. But we have other great things in line.
1: Yes. Um, so your festival this year is running from the first to the third of July at Diggin Edge and Fed Square. So that's very handy for a lot of people. Um, how have you seen the the festival grow since two thousand and thirteen?
0: well yeah it's uh, it's grown a lot in the in its short lifespan it's uh you know we started off i guess none of us had really worked in events management before we all made web series and we just yeah, you know, we'd been overseas to a couple of web series festivals, and and realised that this was um, um, Australia was like the third biggest country in these festivals in terms of how many series were represented. That's
1: amazing! So yeah. we're punching above our weight.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And this is mind you, was before there was any funding available, too. So yeah. that was uh, you know kind of this discovery that we travelled all this way, and then we met. The guy who lives down the street, who's you know who we didn't know about, and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, and then we realised, hey, there's so much work coming out of Australia. So, the first year was a one-day affair, I suppose. In uh, in uh, we were in a studio building in the western suburbs, and then uh, that was great fun. But um, it's really, really good now to be you <clears throat> know in the CBD. And we're able to screen more series. Um, it's, you know, in the heart of, heart of town, you know, overlooking the era and this amazing, this amazing venue, um, which is, which is absolutely great. And, you know, we just see the number of submissions growing exponentially year to year and also just the quality is quite mind-blowing.
1: Definitely. And uh, I think it has all those great feelings of a short film festival. When you, when you head there, you know, uh, it's a series of short stories and, you know, your emotions are, are raised and you're taken on all these journeys. But there's something about it where most short film festivals can feel a little exclusive and far away and how am I ever going to see this content again and find it again
0: your festival has the opposite feeling <laughs> yeah you can go well I guess that's sort of I mean I don't want to talk bad about short film festivals because I think you know short films are amazing but I think it kind of um I mean a lot of fest- short film festivals as well sort of owning up to that fact that okay if we can't just warehouse people's content they mm. have to be able to get it out to an audience and I guess that's what web series is all about is that you make it and you hit an upload button or you can, and it's there and you can you can uh, you know there's uh the distance between the creators and the audience is uh, there there's you know there's hardly any distance uh, and uh yeah you can with a web series you can start sort of um, growing an audience from day one, which is really really exciting and and uh I suppose the festivals as well, like, there's so much content out there that yeah. what we try to do, you know, we also acknowledge the great work that people are doing out there, but also providing a curated forum for people, for lovers of good stories that, you know, here's some of the best stuff that's uh, online at the moment.
2: And I guess the flip side of that, the flip side of short films now being on the internet is the fact that you're having a web a web film festival in a physical location. <laughs> like, you know, you're bringing something <laughs> a big that... a screen, yeah. Yeah, you're bringing something that you can watch on your phone, you can watch at any time, you can watch instantaneously. And what most people would think of, oh, I've curated a lot of web series on a blog or something, <laughs> but you, it's yeah. like you're bringing that blog and that awards <laughs> to, to real life. What's the atmosphere like getting all these different people who, who love... Uh, web series, but also who are making them and producing them, getting all of that together in that one <laughs> small area.
0: There's, yeah, there is a lot of excitement, obviously, and I think uh, very often for web series creators, it's, uh, it can be, you know, there is, people have, some people, I should say, not all people, but some have got budgets to make their content at the moment, which two years ago was almost unheard of, you know. So that helps. But I think still they're low budgets and people are often, you know, the post production stage of most web series are kind of like a lonely experience. You know, you might get an audience out there, but the fact that you can kind of come together in a place like Melbourne Web Fest or other festivals, you know, and actually share ideas and network and and maybe even start some new projects with uh, with people you connect with at the festival. I think is extremely exciting. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement. You know, a lot of happy people who are out and about and, and uh, making new connections.
1: So let's speak more specifically about the tangible things that you're doing to help the community um, upskill itself and um, maybe get more content, local content out there. Can you tell us about your, your new partnership?
0: Yeah, well, I'm not sure we're really allowed to call it a partnership, because oh. you know, this is with, uh, with ABC iview, they're you know a taxpayer-funded organisation, so... They don't particularly like that idea of being okay, partners just, or a, sponsors, a fri- a but we are. Yeah, it's, it's a friendship. It's a you know they've been they've been great supporters of the festival since we started. You know they've been involved or had people speaking on on discussion panels uh, and, and things with us since the first year. So that's amazing, and you know they're a great institution for for digital series and up and coming talent in Australia. So. This is something that we've been talking about for a while, but you know, a few months ago the stars aligned and and we established uh, this pitching competition, Pitch Perfect, at Melbourne Webfest with ABC iView, and that's really exciting. There's um, five thousand dollars up for grabs, um, and you know, the idea is that hopefully that will then be used for script development and. The, uh, this spark of idea would hopefully eventuate into a, into a pilot for iview. But the $5,000 that, that uh, the cash prize is earmarked a trip to France to Marseille and their WebFest over there, which is a partner festival of ours. Mm. Uh, They have a writing residency that goes for a whole week leading up to their festival, and and, uh, this year that's sponsored by Fox Digital. So the $5,000 cash prize is meant to send one person over there to work, uh, you know, to develop the idea and hopefully come home with a bit more meat on the bone because... Yeah, we only at this point uh, to submit. Submissions are still open, I should say, till Friday. That's when it yeah, closes. Uh, and uh, the God, there is no barrier to entry. All we want is a great creative idea on the theme, anytime, anywhere, which is pretty open, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Fifty words uh, pitch for an original web series, and then uh, um, the uh, we'll shortlist fifteen entries. That will be announced next Friday. Mm. And we're also taking uh, um, wildcard entries from the festival. So this uh, 15, 20 pitches all up, we'll be be pitching to a live audience and a panel of juries featuring uh, some ABC people, uh, John Cabrera, one of our international guests, uh, yours truly, and and Craig Batty, who's a screenwriting uh, professional and academic.
1: So the competition's free to enter. Um, Submitting a pitch in 50 words or less under the theme anytime, anywhere by Friday, that actually seems quite doable. You don't have to have made anything by then. You just have to have a germ of an idea. I know so many people that are like, oh, I've got this great idea for a web
2: series. I've got this great idea, but oh, I'll never be able to get it made. But all you need is the idea.
1: I think that there should be some people rocking up to this and maybe if they don't quite have the idea, they should rock up to the festival and see if suddenly the ideas come because you are surrounded by so many great ideas Mm. at this festival that well could happen. All right, that's a fantastic opportunity. So other than that, um, could you tell us a little bit about the professional development day that you run as part of the festival?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always been a very important thing for us as part of the festival that we're offering, you know, not just sort of, Awards and high fives and parties, which is you know that has to be part of it. Obviously, that's a very core part of a, of a festival. But to also offer something in the way of development and you know like with the IB, uh, ABC iView pitching comp uh, opportunities to actually realise your next idea. Uh, but yeah, we've always been been running workshops and some panels. Uh, this year, we're at La Trobe in the in the uh, they have a city campus where we're doing five uh, sorry four masterclasses. Mm-hmm. So we're doing one on sort of using r- restraint as a form to uh, as a way to grow your creativity, creating feedback loops with an audience, and you know. Keep going back to the drawing board with mm. uh, with uh, what, creating uh, feedback loops from the audience, which we're really excited about. Um, there's one on uh, pitching, which will be done by a guy called John Cabrera, who's our uh, international guest this year. So John uh, is a I think he's probably most famous as, well, famous uh, what what is most known for is his, uh, he as an actor he was he. He was on Gilmore Girls and coming back to Gilmore Girls again now. Um, which
1: character on the Gilmore Girls? He,
0: uh, <laughs> uh, his character was called Brian uh, Fuller. He was one of the guys in the band. Oh,
1: great. Right. Yeah. Yeah, excellent.
0: Yeah, so he's revisiting his, uh, his role now that they're coming up on Netflix, which will be exciting to see, uh, you know, all those years later. Yeah. But he's uh, since sort of... Uh, Took a step out of acting and started writing and he worked with uh, Brian Singer, who was the producer director of the X-Men franchise on a uh, series called H+. It's a couple of years old now and it was running for three years, but at the time, uh, I'm sure someone will tell me that I'm wrong, but I believe it was one of the biggest budget web series series. at the time when it was first made Mm. so he's someone who's obviously you know that was a that was a, a collaboration it was developed through warner brothers studios and then the distribution was was a collaboration between warner brothers and youtube so you know he's someone who knows who's worked with hollywood studios and who knows how to pitch ideas to the right people so that that's really exciting um and we also have a uh, a virtual reality masterclass in in, uh, in virtual reality. This yeah. is the one
1: that sounds amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, there's a
0: a couple of guys in Sydney who started a business called Lens Immersive, which uh, so it's a production house as well as a a distribution platform for virtual reality content mm. that launched at the start of the year. So. You know, they're looking for people to teach people how to make virtual reality films.
1: Such an um, edgy um, topic too because we're still figuring out so much about the usability in that space. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Absolutely.
1: Are you into the virtual reality experiences yourself very much? Um,
0: I uh, I've, I can't say that I am. I mean, I've tried it a few times and it's amazing. It's uh, it's absolutely incredible. Mm. something that I want to get more into. But, yeah, you know, this might be the... Kick that I need to, <laughs> to get into it, so they 're bringing a, uh, a film rig to this workshop and will, uh, will take us through some, uh, some some key steps on on how Excellent. to make virtual reality content, so that will be that will be phenomenal
2: I mean with VR in a couple of years, you could be having quite an overlap between web series and games where you 're actually interacting there, so choose your own adventure type thing even
0: absolutely, yeah, I think that you know. It's just the, the the imagination, I think, that sets the limits for that uh, that sort of stuff. If you if you're if you're clever and and, uh, and good with technology, I think that's the uh, where it's at at the moment. It's sort of mastering both the creative side and the technology mm. technology side of uh, of that. the where um, we probably have a have a way to go. But you know, it's, it's, it's still a, it's a very new expensive medium.
1: too. Yeah. So, and that has got to change uh, yeah. for people. Yeah, I to
0: think prices to... are coming down yes, now on you yeah. know, Telstra. or Every uh, telco provider has been mm. doing some. Uh, some uh, pretty uh, uh, exciting giveaways and stuff. If you sign up on things, you get you know, headsets for hey, free and that sort of thing. This so, is
1: a bit out of left field, but I wonder, have you seen um, much use of, of drones in filming for web series as yet? Yes. Really?
0: Yeah, people use... You know, it's much cheaper than hiring a helicopter. A crane or, a <laughs> or a crane, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, there's quite a few people who are using them using them now so and uh, you know it's uh, that opens up a whole new range of possibilities and on making things look the way you want want them to and, and uh, yeah.
1: So there's one more um, part of your program which I love and I uh, wonder if you could uh, tell us a bit about it's what you call the spotlight on Melbourne.
0: Yes yeah that's an exciting uh, addition to the program that's on the Thursday or the 30th of, of June it's uh <coughs> Excuse me. It's uh, showcasing a bunch of local produce that you know. Unfortunately, we couldn't find room for them in the in the uh, in the official selections. We have limited screening capacity, but there's so much amazing content coming out of Melbourne that uh, that you know. Even cutting that selection down to ten this year was was incredibly difficult mm. and um yeah that's a that's a really exciting sort of you know um early networking uh, party and uh, mm. just to kick off things bef- the night before the official launch i suppose and it's yeah very exciting at loop
1: and we're happy to be joined in studio by professor justin zobo he's been with us on the show before he's a professor at the university of melbourne in the department of computing Computing and technology? Computing and?
3: Computing and information systems.
1: And information systems. You know, uni departments, they check. it right, oh, Vanessa. No. <laughs> oh, what are we paying you for? Oh, oh, yeah, maybe we're not. Maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe that's why. Look, thanks so much for joining us again. Um, I'm going to call you Justin and, and dispense with the formalities, if that's all right. Please. Okay. So I was excited to find out that this month marks 60 years since the first computer came to Victoria. I did not know that. Uh, and you're here because you know all about this. Now, you're not old enough to know all about this the way you say you do, so I'm very suspicious already. I'm <laughs> time traveller. <laughs> <laughs> I think we may have a time traveller here. However, um, the computer was called CYRAC, C-S-I-R-A-C, and I wonder if you could tell us what that means.
3: What that means is that it was a machine built by the CSIRO in the very late 40s, 1949,
1: mm.
3: fourth computer in the world.
1: That's amazing. I can't mm. believe that Victoria had the fourth computer. Oh,
3: Unfortunately, Sydney had it first.
1: Oh, oh it burns. It, oh, it does God. burn. So how did we end up having it down in Melbourne? What was the journey of this computer?
3: It was built in Sydney. It was used by the CSIRO up there. It was a lot of money to run. They mm. deemed other things, such as weather control, to be more interesting than computing. And so in favour of um, other research, it got eventually turned off. right. Uh, Melbourne offered to host it. It came down on a truck down the Hume Highway.
1: That's amazing. There's a
3: lovely photo of it parked at um, Gundagai at the side of the road, covered with a tarpaulin. It's about half the size of a shipping container. And it came to Melbourne in 55. took us a year to put it back together. It was turned on June 14, 1956.
2: Amazing. So this is... Before television, I think at the time when it was actually made, because uh, as far as I can recall from my history textbooks, <laughs> we got television around the nineteen fifty six Commonwealth Games. Mm,
3: uh, no, 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 we wrong got Olympic Games.
2: Oh, Olympic Games, uh, games. I, if my history teacher's listening, I'm so sorry.
3: <laughs> it, yeah, television was about five months later. Um, so at the time it was turned on, Victoria it was still Australia's only computer for about a week. South Australia turned one after that.
1: So being the fourth computer in the world, where do you get your parts from when you start to build this and how do you get the knowledge to build a computer?
3: That really is a great question. Those first computers, the very first ones built directly after the war, a lot of the know-how came out of the Bletchley Park.
1: Ah, right, the encryption. Yeah, where Alan Turing did his work.
3: Absolutely. Alan Turing invented the principles of computing before the war. Uh, in a very abstract sense, helped make them concrete during the war, uh, was at Manchester when the baby was built, probably the first computer. Uh, The ideas gelled then, and we look at those computers like CYRAC. It's about a million times slower than an iPhone or smartphone, um, a million times bigger in capacity, a millionth of the size, a ten millionth of the power... But the ideas in it really haven't changed that much. The the core was created in those first one or two years after the war, that initial design, and hasn't changed that much. So where did those ideas come from? Out of the heads of mathematicians. The parts were from radios and the, um, you know, big uh, equipment that we're used to from that time for broadcasting.
1: uh, So it was recording things to tape?
3: Um, no, I'm just talking about the valves themselves. Oh,
1: right. Okay, valves, All the switches, right. yep. I can't imagine a valve-based computer. That would be the most hipster thing ever. <laughs> I, I was, Yeah, I was just going to ask, because
2: when we think of computers these days, you know, we automatically think keyboard, mouse, that type of stuff. But what you're describing, there's some amazing photos online, but for listeners who don't have access to that, it was radically different from, from what we'd imagine today.
3: Absolutely. So... Uh, it looks something like when these doors are on, about 10 fridges in a row. <laughs> so it is huge. It's uh, got a disk drive that's originally stored, I think, about 120 or 160 characters, something like that. That's about the size of a car wheel. <laughs> it's got about 2,000 valves, which you can see. So I should add, it, it's in the Melbourne Museum. It's by far the oldest surviving computer in the world. Uh, and that's partly because it ran for such a long time. It ran until 1964. Right. So some of the original users are still around.
2: And how was it operated? Not with a giant keyboard that you jumped on to get the different letters.
3: Uh, no, <laughs> not a giant matching keyboard. Um, punch tape was and a uh, console, uh, an array of switches. So you set the switches, pressed a button, that entered a value into memory, set the switches again, pressed a button, yes. that entered the next value.
1: Think how precise you would have had to be to get that sequence right, otherwise you have to start all over again. Mm.
3: Look, it sounds primitive, but mm. for the people using it at the time, it was a supercomputer. You know, it, uh, one of the early users, you know, made the point that um, in an hour or so he could do a year's calculation.
1: So what sort of uses are we looking at? It's, it's mathematical uses, it's crunching big numbers... Do you have any examples of the sorts of problems they were trying to solve?
3: Sure. So, one it, one of its first achievements was that it generated the first computer music, <laughs> oh. which is also can be found on a website. And but please do not listen. <laughs> so, was this, this when lovely. the
1: computer was in Sydney or Melbourne? That was in Sydney. Oh, that's
3: a shame.
0: Oh. In, <laughs> Sydney.
3: <in the laughs> Damn you, Sydney! Um, it was used for weather forecasting or trials of weather forecasting it was used in practice to do things like do the engineering calculations for the first skyscrapers in melbourne so
1: did it have anything to do with the Westgate bridge
3: i don't know it's i hope not
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes that would be a a poor uh, case study you wouldn't be putting that one up on the website don't blame the computer for that (laughs) (laughs) no it could be it could be simple switch error switch error um, so did you, did you ever get to see this computer running? You said it ran for quite a while, but it didn't, uh, sorry, I've forgotten when, how long you said it ran for.
3: It ran till 1964. Oh, it, okay, it took that's roughly, pretty early. Yeah, it took roughly speaking two engineers to
1: mm.
3: keep it running every day, um, turning, replacing valves, keeping circuits soldered and connected, uh, so when it was turned off it really was ready to be turned off, but we were lucky that it was turned off so late, because it was already a museum piece when it was turned off. It was given to the museum immediately. It took them 35 years to get it on display, but, you know, they still have it, so that is fantastic.
1: That's amazing. So was this computer ever part of a network or was it only ever a standalone machine? It was
3: only ever standalone. Networks appeared, began to appear in the US in the late 60s. Uh, Australia was regrettably late mm. introducing networks. They began to appear here during the late 70s and evolved during the 80s
1: so women in IT is a really hot topic now so to take a real a real leap from from this uh one thing that's been observed is that in the early days of computing a lot of women were involved so at Bletchley Park there are a lot of women doing you know data entry sort of roles and and thinking about how they could um help and much solve problems. more first absolutely
3: we the we used to the word computer applying to a machine but the word computer was uh, largely women sitting doing calculations at uh, mechanical calculators turning the handles entering the numbers and often very mathematically capable women Mm, mm. and that's the reason a lot of the early programmers were women because they shifted from the role as doing the calculation to specifying what the calculation should be right through to 1983-84 women were large participants in the discipline Mm. in the early 80s the home computer arrived and Uh, Whatever social forces took place, I imagine mostly teenage boys clustered around the screen, Uh, the interest of girls in the discipline just began to decline.
1: Yeah, so it is amazing to think um, that. You know, there was a lot of equality in the early days, and then and then that really changed over time. And and now, I guess we're trying to to turn that around again and make sure that all sorts of people who have an interest in this field really really have the opportunity and um, and see examples of other people using computers and enjoying programming and, and thinking about the sort of careers there.
3: Absolutely, and it's not just the careers. I see, you see young people in particular using computers to build amazing things. It's the most remarkable creative medium we you know we're all used to consuming apps and whatever on our phones and from our tablets and via media and the, the enhancements we add to our videos and all those things the way we mix music together yeah and that's programming
1: so were there many um examples of women in the teams that got access to this first computer in victoria
3: there weren't many there were a couple mm. um, i I can't speak for the rest of the, of the world. Mm. But there are small numbers of women here using the, using those computers and studying computing through the 60s, seventies, early eighties mm. I mean women obviously continue to study, but of course, but not yeah. in the same numbers.
2: I guess it's just, it can be inspirational as well to know that there were people, there were our ancestors, so to speak, actually right there in the forefront doing all these amazing things and that it's not a new thing for girls to be involved. You're actually harking back to a long and and really fantastic tradition.
3: Absolutely. And look, as a academic who often gets to meet people who are interested in computing, one of the saddest things I see is that I'll meet, say, a biomedical PhD student, most of whom are female, who will say, oh, I had to study a little programming subject because I had this data coming off my genetic sequencing machine or whatever the object is, and I love it. Why didn't anyone tell me
1: 15 years ago how fantastic this was? The, the, the convergence of skills I'm seeing in my friendship group as, um, you know, they've studied as economists, as uh, biomedical scientists, and you know, the two friends I'm thinking of right now both have PhDs in their respective fields, and both of them have ended up in spaces where they're like, oh, you know, I'm learning a bit of programming now. Oh, wow, I'm doing statistical analysis that you can't wrap your head around because you don't do that sort of programming, you full stack web developer. So <laughs> it's, um, it's really excellent to hear hear that um that you're seeing that too and um and hopefully people uh, like women in computing won't always have this question about oh what's it like being a woman in computing hopefully it'll just be like oh another woman in computing just like in the old days maybe we could get to that point
3: that'd be beautiful that would be beautiful
1: Mm. So, the Melbourne Museum, um, I haven't been there in, in quite a while, and I must say, I, I did think that they were all about dinosaurs and the natural world and Melbourne's specific history of trams and Farlap, and I don't know what else what? <laughs> I think of. <laughs> but I had no idea that they had this computer. Um,
3: it was, not only do they have the computer, but you don't even have to pay to see it. When wow. you walk in the front door of the museum, you go straight down the steps, and it's waiting there for you, um, just outside the entrance or exit from Jurassic World right now, just sitting there waiting to be to be gazed upon.
1: Excellent! You just hang out with it all day. Well, I know where I'm going to be taking the young impressionable people in my life very soon. It'll be, you know, Auntie Vanessa is going to bore you and and uh, and take you to the museum. But wait. Now she's telling us amazing stories about the fourth computer in the world. It's really a different type of dinosaur,
3: except it's <laughs> It absolutely is. But when you think of it as a dinosaur, here's my pitch. Until that computer and the three that came before it, every machine ever built was built to do one thing. It was the first machine that was built to do everything. Anything that could be captured as data, anything you can write down a process to handle that data, any computer can do. So the first everything machine, or the oldest everything machine left in the world...
1: That is fantastic. Um, Professor, I really feel like I have to call you Professor now and I wish that you'd been one of my professors. Thank you so much for telling us about this really significant piece of hardware in Victoria that we had no idea that we have and that we can be so proud of. I do hope that you drive a whole lot of visits to Melbourne Museum after this.
3: Oh, I hope I do. How
1: heartwarming was that? I know. I love that. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I definitely have
2: to be heading down to the Melbourne Museum soon just to check out the world's fourth oldest
1: computer. I had no idea. Even, even when I lined up that chat, I had no idea. Um, apparently, my reading and comprehension is not as deep. I don't think they really led with that angle. I think... Oh, excuse ooh. me. I'm having some technical difficulties, which is embarrassing on the most technical program. If that's on the okay. I think we're so excited about having this <laughs> CYRAC here with us. um In are. our presence.
2: So, yeah, yeah that,
1: that's great. We'll so, definitely have to get along. So, I think we need to jump into our weird news of the week, Cassie. What have we got this week? So, I've actually found
2: something, and I'm really embarrassed that this game was launched in February this year and it took me this long to uh find it it's a card game a physical card game called Matcha. that's it off the show <laughs> no
1: okay no tell me um, why is this relevant it's called it's, it's
2: called Matcher, and it's actually based on a millennial experience of using dating apps such as tinder
1: oh I see so like match like m-a-t-c-h and then r yeah yeah what? definitely um
2: So where you actually, you have little cards with people's profile pictures on them and some of them are (laughs) regular pictures and some of them are really artsy. Um, You've got their name, their age and whether they're into girls, guys or everyone. Um, You've got a little bio and then you've got three hashtags at the bottom such as hashtag so hip, hashtag mad props, hashtag swag. And what you need to do is match Two cards together, they both have to like the other gender. So either two everyone's or one guy and one girl. If they're you know, yeah. um, and they have to have two matching hashtags to actually be compatible okay. out of the three. Right, two out two out of three. But then there are actually other cards that actually throw things into like a wild card. So if you've got that, you can actually have a sneaky look at someone else's hand or. Um, you can, you can match someone in a different
1: way. So who do you recommend this game for, Cassie? Is it for people trying to understand millennials dating? No, I think it's, it's just a fun party game. <laughs> uh, I would recommend this
2: game, and I think that's why I am so intrigued by it, for people who are sad, bitter and alone but <laughs> want to celebrate at parties the fact that, hey, we've all used Tinder, we've used it to varying degrees of success, let's all have a bit of fun and have a laugh at, you know, the hilarious situation that is life <laughs> and, um, and you're really like it's not meant to be mean. You're having a laugh no, at yourself as no. well, and I, I, it's user submitted pictures as as well. So it's not it's not t- you know being mean to anyone. But um, yeah, it's just a great little great little card game that you can get online, and that uh, I will definitely be playing at my next house party.
1: <laughs> I wonder if it might also be a way to introduce people to the concept of online dating who have been a little bit scared of it.
2: Well, it's, might normalize it might normalise because it came out in February. Actually, it hasn't gotten to the stage because Tinder now has group dates. So Maybe we'll see a match or two come out where you actually group people, but that's a whole other level of confusion. But you know. Okay, you have
1: knocked <laughs> weird news of the week out of the park this week. Thank you, Cassie. Yeah, you're welcome. Very well done. This has been a podcast
0: from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.